Well, we've used some new words this year. Have you noticed there's some new buzzwords that are in our uh, vocabulary? My favorite word, not my favorite word, but the most popular word this year is COVID, okay? <laughs> Last year, you're like, what's COVID? Is that like a Tesla model? What are, you, what are we talking about? COVID or coronavirus or the Rona. Uh, the Rona. <laughs> you guys heard about that? Like, you know, you got coronavirus. Ooh, the Rona got you. That's what I've heard. Also, a phrase that would have been really funny to me last year, social distancing. What does that mean? You're social, but you're distanced. Like, what, what are you talking about? Like, you're, you're still social, but you're distanced. Okay, that's kind of a weird word. We use that. Another word, uh, flattening the curve. You guys know that phrase? Remember that? Back a long time ago when we tried to flatten the curve? I don't know what happened to that. I don't hear that word very much anymore, but all those phrases, and then also wearing a mask. If we said, hey, you got to wear a mask to school, they're like, is there, was there like a fire or something? Are, are we like pretending to be like doctors or surgeons or something? Why, why do I have to wear a mask to school, right? It would have been really weird last year because you wouldn't have known what happened this year. But it's funny because all those different words we've been using, masks, social distancing, flattening the curve, COVID, coronavirus, all of it has really been about one thing. All of it has been about one thing. People not getting sick and not dying, right? Think about it. That's what all the scare is. That's what all the people are freaked out about. It's because, you know, you got a sickness and, you know, if you got a sickness, there's a potential that if you get sick, you could die, right? That's what all of that conversation has been about. I mean, how many times in a year do you see death counts on the TV, right? It just doesn't happen very much. There's been all this attention and focus on sickness and on death this year. And it's interesting because the Bible actually gives an answer to that. And if imagine someone came in and said, you know what, I have the cure, the cure to not just COVID, not just any sickness, all sickness. And not just sickness, I have a cure for death. That if you die, you'll live forever. I've got a cure to all of that. Well, that's what the Bible has. The Bible actually does have a cure for all of that. And it can give you an attitude of really fearlessness in the midst of anything that's scary. Because it does say that we can live forever. And we're going to check this out in the Gospel of John because what we're about to do in John 11, you can turn there right now, John chapter 11, we're going to go to a funeral. That's what we're walking into right here. John 11 is the site of a funeral. I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral recently. I went to one recently where I didn't know the person very well. So it was somebody from an extended family. Um, I didn't know them very well, but I was there. And it's interesting when you're at a funeral and you feel like you're kind of looking in on what's going on. There's all this sadness and all these memories that are being shared that you just, you weren't a part of. That's what you are going to experience right here. We're going to a funeral of a person you don't know, okay? So in order to really understand what's going on here in this funeral of Lazarus, you have to start to think, what would it be like if I was there? Seeing people who are hurting, seeing people who are crying, hearing the memories of this guy's life. That's what we're walking into here in John 11. John 11 verse 1 says, now a certain man was ill. So he's not dead yet. We're not at a funeral yet. He's just sick. This guy's name was Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So we're supposed to know who these people are, by the way. And that's why he says, it's the, it's the Bethany where Mary lived. And you're like, well, <laughs> the Bethany, it's like saying, oh, it's the city of, of Athens where, where, where Mary lived. It's like there's Athens, Georgia, there's Athens, Greece, there's Athens, Tennessee. I mean, there's a million Athens, there's a million, like, what city are we talking about here? There's actually multiple Bethanies in Israel. This is the one that we're going to find out later is two miles away from Jerusalem. So two miles to the east of Jerusalem. This is close to where all that stuff in John 7, 8, 9 and 10 was happening. But if you remember last week, Jesus was there preaching, and what did the people do? 
they rejected him. They ran him out of town. They threw, they threw stones at him, and he got away. So he goes to this other place across the Jordan River. So miles and miles away. Now his friend back near Jerusalem is sick. And this city of Bethany, you're supposed to know because of Mary and Martha. And you might know those names, Mary and Martha. There's tons of Marys in, in the Bible. There's tons of Marys in the New Testament. This is the one where it says she anointed the Lord Jesus with oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Okay? That story comes from Matthew and Mark. It's in other gospels. And the reason John kind of presents that as like, oh, you should know who that is, is because I think the reason John wrote this gospel was not to retell all of the events of those other gospels because he comes later. He comes about 30 years after those other gospels are written. So people already know that those stories. They know the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. They don't know the stories that John says, though. He's giving some new insight. So anyway, we're supposed to know who these people are. Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. They're all siblings. They live in this town of Bethany. So the sisters, verse 3, check this out. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. This guy, you love him. They don't even give his name. But Jesus understands who they're talking about. They're talking about Lazarus. Lazarus is ill. And it doesn't say that the, the, the sisters came to Jesus. They sent someone to come to Jesus and tell him that he's ill. You know, what he doesn't, what they don't say here is, Jesus, you need to come here right now because he's sick. Please heal him. All they say is, he's sick. And that was supposed to be enough. Jesus was supposed to understand that and know exactly what to do, and he does. Verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. That's why Lazarus got sick. It's not because he'll die. It's not because he's going to stay in the grave. It, it, it's just because... We need the world to see that I am the son of God. That's what Jesus says. Now, at this point in the story, if you had not heard anything else about the story, if we're just reading the gospel of John along and you don't know how the story ends, what do you expect to happen right now? At this point in the story, Jesus hears that his friend is sick, that he could possibly die. Jesus says, I'm, I'm going to come and he, he will not die. This sickness does not end in death. What do you expect Jesus to do? You expect Jesus to pick up all of his stuff, go there, and heal him, right? That, that's what we've seen in the gospel. That's what he does all the time. When someone's sick, he goes and he heals them. Or he heals them from a distance. That's what we'd expect, right? Look at verse 5. It says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. That's kind of weird. It says, Because Jesus loved them, he stayed where he was. That is weird. Like if there was someone who was sick and you were a paramedic or a fireman or, or a nurse or something, said, I love that person. So I'm going to stay here for two days. I'll, I'll, go, I'll go attend to them later. You'd be like, what are you doing? Why? He needs to be saved now. He needs, he needs to be brought back to perfect health right now. That's what would have made sense to Mary and Martha and to all the people around him and to the disciples. But that's not what Jesus did. Jesus had a special plan for all this. He knew that what he was going to do. He had this different plan. He then, it says, verse 7, Then after he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just seeking to stone, to you, to stone you. Are you really going to go there again? Remember the end of John 10? They ran him out of town. They were throwing rocks at him. The disciples were like, Are we sure that we really want to go back to Jerusalem right now? I know Bethany is only two miles away from Jerusalem, but all those people who live in that metroplex area, I mean, people are going to find out that you're there. We're going to get killed if we go. Verse 9, Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in a day? 
If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not on him. You may think, okay, Jesus gave some weird illustration, spiritual truth here. And he does. What he says is, if you walk during the day, you're going to be fine because you're going to see the stuff in front of you. You see the path. You see the signs. You see the rocks that are in front of you. You see the danger. But at nighttime, you don't see that because you don't have the light. What Jesus is saying, I think, is the disciples are concerned. If we go to Jerusalem with Jesus, we're going to die. Someone's going to hurt us. Jesus says, just remember, who are you walking with? You're walking with the light of the world. Okay, so don't freak out. Let's not be afraid. If you were walking without the light of the world and I wasn't with you, maybe you should be afraid because it's like walking at night and you could stumble and you could trip and there's danger and there's wolves and there's lions. But if you walk in the day, it's a totally different, it's a totally different story. So Jesus is trying to calm their fears here. Now, verse 11. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. And if you found out the guy who was ill has now fallen asleep, you'd think, oh, well, that's really good. He needs rest. He needs some rest. This is a good thing that he's sleeping. But then, wait a minute, hold on. You want to go there to wake him up from his sleep. If he's sleeping, he's going to be okay. He's going to recover. That's exactly what the disciples say. They say in verse 12, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. That's a good thing. It's a good thing if, if a patient can sleep and get good rest. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death. When he said, oh, he fell asleep, what Jesus really meant was he's dead. But they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then, the, then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And that would have been really sad for them. We don't know how many friends Jesus had. It actually seems like he doesn't have very many. And when Martha and Mary say, this guy is your friend. You, you love him. He's close to you. This is probably one of the closest people to Jesus outside of his small group of 12 disciples. And he's dead. I mean, I don't know how many friends you have. But if, you, if you're only friends with 12 or so people and someone just on the outskirts of your friend group who you really love and that everyone said, oh, you're friends with him, he dies, what would you be thinking? It would hurt, right? It'd be a huge bummer. Be like, I can't believe he's dead. Lazarus is dead. Look what Jesus says. He told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Verse 15 is one of the most weird and unexpected verses in the chapter. He says, and for your sake, the disciples, for your sake, I'm glad I was not there. I'm glad he died. What is Jesus saying here? What are we talking about? Je Jesus said he, he's glad that Lazarus died. He's glad that they weren't there. Why? So that you may believe. But let us, all the disciples, let us all go to him. Jesus says he's glad that Lazarus died. And that's why Jesus waited two days. Because he was waiting for Lazarus to die. He says this was a good thing for the disciples because if this didn't happen, Jesus would have gone immediately. He would have healed him just like all these other healing miracles and their level of faith would have stayed right where it was. Because they're like, I know Jesus can heal somebody. I saw him do it with the blind man. I saw him do it with the paralytic. But he says, I'm glad because what I'm going to do is I'm going to stretch your faith even further. I'm going to show you more of who I am and it's going to be something like you've never seen before. Verse 16, so Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us go also. Come on, guys, let's go, that we may die with him. And this is a, probably a sarcastic verse. He's probably saying, yeah, come on, guys. I mean, <laughs> Jesus says, let's go. So I guess let's just go, and I guess we'll just die. You have a friend like that? Oh, yeah, <laughs> Ryan does. Uh, he said, mm -hmm. yeah. 
A friend like that who's just like, oh, well, if you do this, you know, if you do this, like, everybody's going to hate us, and they're going to think we're stupid, and we might as well just die. Um, that's kind of what Thomas does. He's a little dramatic, but he might be telling the truth, too. Think about it. Jesus almost got stoned three times. Maybe he's not being dramatic. Maybe he's just being honest. Maybe he's just saying, look, we've, we, we, we escaped that city like three times from getting rocks thrown at us. You know, if we go, we're probably going to die, right? Even though Jesus says he's the light of the world and all that stuff, he has little faith. He has some faith. Because here's what I think he's also saying. It might be sarcastic, but there's a little truth in every joke, isn't there? We say, oh, yeah, let's just go die with him. If Jesus turned around and asked him, hey, would you die with me? I bet Thomas would say, yeah, I would die with you. I don't want to. Feels like a stupid thing we're doing to go to Jerusalem. But yeah, I probably would die with you. So there's probably some truth to that. What I want to do is just take these little segment by segment. We're not going to read the whole story. I just want you to feel like you're living this story. I want you to feel like you're there. You're with the disciples. And I want you to see in these first 16 verses, there's a huge truth that we find. Lazarus's sickness had a purpose. Lazarus's death had a particular purpose that Jesus had in mind. What was it that the disciples may believe? There was a purpose in all that. God had a purpose for his sickness. If you think not just about Lazarus and this one guy and this one story, if you take a step back and look at every death and every sickness, does God have a reason for it? Does God have a plan for it? Was it God's original design? Is this what he wants? Is this what he likes? Is this what he desires? All of those questions, we need, to, we need to answer those questions. We need to think about that. And I want you to take a step back and think about life and about death. We don't talk about it all the time, but it's something we should think about more often. Life and death, what's the difference? Like, what is life? What is death? It's just weird. When you start thinking, you know, the rock is not alive and the tree is. And there's something about the tree that there's development and growth and cell reproduction. And, and it's just different. And it grows. That's life and the rock. There's, I mean, it's just a rock. No life. It's just not even that it's dead. It's just it's never had life. Then you think about people. People who have life. They're animated. They're talking. They're thinking. They're interacting. They're showing emotion. They're alive. And then when they're not, they're dead. And it's weird. If you ever spend time around a dead body, it's like, especially if you knew the person, it's like, I, I, I shook that hand. I hugged that person. And they were, they were there. And now it's like I'm looking at this body and it's like they're not even there. There's a body there, clearly, but it's like they're not there. Then you might think, well, is that what God wants? Is that like just the way things have to be? That's the way it always was? The answer is no. It's not the way things work. And that's not the way things ought to be. And God right now is enacting this huge plan to reverse it. This story, John 11, is like a tiny little microcosm. It's a tiny little thing, a story that was a real story, not a fake story. But it's like a little piece of the big piece. That this guy is going to die and there's this sickness, there's this death, and there's a purpose for all of it. And, and we need to see it. And we need to see how it relates to the big picture. So point number one, write this down. Understand sickness and death in God's plan. Understand sickness and death in God's plan. The question we should be asking ourselves is, is this the way that God wanted things to be? That people would live for a couple of decades and then die. That they'd get sick and their bodies would have pain. And their hands and their feet and their fingers and their backs and their lungs, they all wouldn't work correct. And they'd get sick and they'd have the flu and they'd throw up. Is that really what God designed our bodies to do? The answer is no. Genesis 1, 31, 
first chapter of the Bible, after God created humans, he said it was very good. So how he designed it originally was very good. In chapter 2, so that was Genesis 1.31, Genesis 2, 16 and 17 says this, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. First time that idea is brought into play. That if they do something that's against God's will, that's sinful, now they're going to die. In that very day, they're going to die. You know the story. You know how it goes. Genesis 3, they do eat of the tree. And then you might think, well, did they die? I mean, immediately they, they, they died, right? They must have fallen dead, right? Well, that's not what happened. But you know, when they ate the fruit, you know what happened from that moment on? From that very moment that they ate that fruit, their bodies began to die. Which is why every person, right, we'll say past 14 or 15, maybe coming out of puberty, guess what? You are dying. You're, you're developing, you're getting bigger, but you're dying. Right? That's why uh, your, your leaders have some wrinkles on their face, right? Because they're dying. <laughs> Sorry, but that's the truth, right? They're dying. That's why things hurt more. I went to Korean barbecue with the leaders. I questioned my theology whether or not they're dying because they ate so much food. I was like looking at myself thinking, I'm a lightweight, man. I can't, I can't eat it. Andy's over there just pounding. Actually, and, me and Andy stopped eating first. That's actually what I noticed. Um, Lewis, I guess, is still growing, right? Because um, he's eating like crazy. He ate 10 of those little, uh, little uh, Asian croissants, yeah? Um, what, what are those? Yozis? Gyoza. We ordered 87, 87 meat items. Did you know that? 87. There's nine of us. Oh, they did? No, you're right. You're right. 87 on the receipt, but they stopped the count. But, but I, I say around 80 because we, we ordered, you know, nine waters. And I got, I got a Coke after like I was done eating because I was like, I got to order something. These guys are still eating. Anyway, um, but even though your leaders can put down a lot of food, and Mark McGill put down a lot of food. I'll just say that. Chris was just getting started. Nick Barnett said he was at 30% capacity, which I don't know if I believe that, but I'll take his word for it. Even though we can eat and we're processing food, guess what? Our bodies are still dying. From that moment on, when they ate that fruit, they started to die. And immediately, not just their bodies started to die, because later on they, they ended up actually physically dying. Physically, they started dying when they ate, but they didn't immediately fall down dead. But you know what happened immediately? When they ate that fruit, they were dead in the separation of, between them and God where they had a good relationship with God, and when they ate in that moment, there was guilt for the first time. There was shame for the first time. There was running away. There was blame shifting. All of that happens right in Genesis 3, when death entered the equation. And to us, reading that story, if we were not in the positions we were, if we were just reading it from start to back with no context, we'd be like, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Something's wrong here. Because God made it and it was good and they were going to live forever and they were going to have these kids and they were going to live in a perfect world and that's the world I want to live in, but now it's all messed up. What happened? It's like a plot twist. You guys know Toy Story 3? Yeah. yeah. Remember that pink bear that was like really, like really good? Like that deep voice you thought he's going to be the grandpa of. Lotso the bear, right? Pink and white and just this like, Strawberry looking, didn't he like smell like strawberries or something like that? Yeah. He was a good guy, right? 
For a while he was, right? You weren't sure about it. You're kind of questioning it, but then, oh, plot twist. He's the, he's the villain. He's the bad guy. That plot twist is what we should feel when we read Genesis 1 and 2. It's good, it's good, it's good. Plot twist, it's bad. Whoa, death. And here's what happens in Genesis 3. Genesis 3:19. God said to Adam, the sinner, who used to be perfect, who now is a sinner, it says, by the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. You're gonna return to the ground because you came from ground for you are dust and to dust you shall return. It says now your life will be this process of decaying and getting old and getting wrinkles and your hair turning gray and you dying. That is the process now. From that moment on. For you and me, that's the world we live in and that's the world that just is normal to us. Here's the problem. That is not normal to God. Death is just not normal. It's, it's the anomaly. We think that if, oh, if someone was able to live forever, that would be unique because we live in this world, in this context where everyone gets old and dies. Here's the problem. That is not how God made us. God didn't make us to break relationships and for death to separate loved ones. That's not how he made us. Hebrews 2 talks about what Jesus does about this. And that's really where the story is going to go. Jesus in Hebrews chapter 2 does something amazing. It says, Therefore, since children, the children, humans, we share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things. That through death, when he died, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all of those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. That all of us, we've got this fear of death. And it's like we're slaves to the fear of death. And we're always worried and concerned and nervous that, well, well maybe if I get sick, then maybe I'll die too early and, and I got to get all, yeah. And that's, those are real fears, true fears. Says he's going to deliver those people from that. First Corinthians 15, 26 says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's the very last enemy to be destroyed. And it's not destroyed till the end of Revelation 20. The devil is destroyed even before death is destroyed. But once it is, it's done. So in God's plan, sickness and death, what is it? It's, it's the villain. It's the enemy. It's the thing that's not the way it should be. It's not the normal. And for us, we think it's normal. Death is just a part of life. That's not how it was originally. We need to see it in the right context. Lazarus' death kind of serves as a little, little picture of the big picture. But that's not the normal. Look at verse 17 now. It says, now Jesus came and he found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. Four days. Now, this is apparently significant because some Jews back then thought that Maybe you could be revived if you were dead for just a little bit. And we even see that today. People sometimes, their heart stops and they, they get revived and then they're back, right? Maybe they were, you know, uh, they'll, they'll say, medically, I was dead for like 26 minutes. Well, they weren't actually dead. Their heart stopped, but their spirit hadn't left their body, right? So what the Jews kind of thought is maybe, in some of them, they do weird things. You guys ever heard of like in coffins, they have like string and ropes just in case the person's not actually dead. So they can pull the, the, the rope and then a bell rings, just in case they're not actually dead. Yeah, they do that today too. Well, they, I don't know if they do that today very much. They used to do that like in the 1800s when they want to, you know, they really want to bury you quick because once you die, you start to decay. This is saying Lazarus was dead for four days. Now imagine that. Four days pass after this person's death. Day one, when they die, maybe family's there. People are crying. It's super sad. It's like, okay, he's dead. He was sick. Maybe Jesus could have done something about it, but now he's dead. Well, may maybe Maybe his heart stopped. He seems like he's dead, but maybe he'll revive. And maybe the next couple hours. And maybe they try. It doesn't work. It doesn't come back. Day two. The morning. The next morning. 
Maybe the, the burial process happened on day one. Maybe it happened on day two. They're wrapping his body, wrapping his arms and his legs and his feet in, in this, um, like the mummy wrap stuff. You know, they're wrapping him with these linen garments, right? And that's what we see later on that Lazarus was wrapped up in all that. And then day two, maybe, you'd think that if there's any chance of revival, it's going to be on day two, right? If not on day one, maybe on day two. But on day two, maybe they put him in that tomb. And he's laying down in this tomb. They, they lay him in this, in this tomb. And they seal it shut with this big stone. Day two, after leaving bur the burial, they go home. I don't know if you've ever been with a family or a funeral. After they bury them and they go home, it's this whole new sense of, of, of shock. Like, I can't, they're gone. They're not coming back. They're in the ground and they're never coming back. There's this horrible thing. That's on day two. Maybe on day three is the first morning you wake up when your loved one is in the grave. It's the first day you wake up and they're not there. Horrible, sad, crying, mourning, all of that's going on in this house. You live that day, as long as that day is, then day four happens, right? And then Jesus shows up on day four. I just want you to see that fourth day is not just a, oh, it's just a random detail. Like, think about all the hurt that happened between death day and day four. Bethany was near Jerusalem, verse 18, about two miles off from Jerusalem. And many of the Jews from Jerusalem, is what's implied there, had come to Mary and Martha to console them concerning their brother. They found out that their brother died. They wanted to be there for him. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha caught word that Jesus was coming into town. And instead of waiting for Jesus to come, Martha is one of those take action type people, it seems like. All throughout the rest of the gospel, she's always the one that's doing and kind of hyper and like, okay, I'll serve you, I'll do this. So she leaves the house immediately when she hears about Jesus. She runs out and she meets Jesus on the way. So Jesus doesn't even get back to Bethany yet. There's, he's still off from, from the village. Mary stays, still crying, mourning. Maybe she's a little bit more sensitive, taking it a little bit harder. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been there, if you had been there, think about that. That's really, if, if you had been there, you could have done something about it. Because you weren't there, you couldn't do anything about it. Couldn't have maybe healed him from afar. And, and, and now it's too late for all of this. It's too late. If you had been there, my brother would not have died. And even in that, don't you see a little bit of faith in there? You think if Jesus was here, he could have saved him. If he was here on time, he could have saved him, but he didn't. And Martha's probably trying to deal with that. I mean, this is day four. There's a lot of thinking about Jesus being there, right? On day four. But even now, verse 22, Martha's talking to Jesus. Even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. That's some more faith. He's saying, if you ask God to raise him from the dead, maybe, I believe you could do that. Even now, whatever you ask of God. Here's the problem. There's a little faith there, but it's not complete. Because guess what? First of all, he could do something about it right now. And Martha doesn't see that. And also, she says, if you ask God, maybe God can do something about it. Who is she talking to? Who, who is Jesus? Jesus is God. I get that she's showing a little bit of faith and she's really hurting. So I don't want to pick on her, but we'll cut her some slack. But just know that this faith is only, only a little faith. There could have been even more. Jesus tests that faith in verse 23. Look at what Jesus says. Look in your Bibles. Verse 23. Jesus said, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know 
He'll rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know. If someone were to tell you, yeah, your loved one's dead, but they'll rise again. What would you say? You'd say, I know, I know. The Bible says that. On the last day, they will rise again. And there's, there's massive comfort there. That the separation you have with them is only temporary. It's only temporary. And that's what Martha's putting her trust in. It's only temporary separation. Daniel 12, verse 2. I want you to write that down. Daniel 12, 2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, and some to everlasting life, and some to everlasting contempt. So, the Old Testament promises that when people die, there's going to be a resurrection and some will go to life and some will go to judgment. The Old Testament promises that in Daniel chapter 12. Look at what verse 25 says. After Jesus hears that, Jesus says in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. Not, yeah, one day I will write. No, no, no. Look who you're talking to. G- I'm, you're talking to Jesus right now, Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. What does that mean? He explains, whoever believes in me, whoever believes in me, trust me, though he die, yet shall he live. If you die physically and you believe in Jesus, guess what's going to happen to you? You're going to live forever physically. You're going to have an eternal life. And at this point, She's probably nodding her head and saying, I get it. I get it. Yeah, I know. Like I just said that. Lazarus is going to, he's going to live forever. I know that. He goes further. Verse 26. And everyone who lives currently, present tense. Whoever lives right now and believes currently, present tense, ongoing, believes in me, shall never die. That is where it gets a little trickier. Well, wait a minute. Didn't Lazarus just die? But you say if anybody lives, does this mean that any Christian, real Christian, won't die? So all the people who die, they're just fake Christians? No, that's not what he's saying at all. He's talking about something else. He's shifting from talking about that physical life to that spiritual life. If you live, really live, you have spiritual life, if you really know God now, and you believe in him in an ongoing way, if your life is categorized by your trust in Jesus, and you're living now with trust in Jesus, though you die, you'll live. And you'll never die when he says die, he's thinking of Genesis 2, 16, die. When you eat of the fruit, you will die, separation. He says if you believe in him, you'll never be separated. Verse, then he says, probably the biggest question here, he says, do you believe this? All that stuff is pretty amazing, but do you actually believe this? He asked Martha. What does Martha say? Yes, Lord, I believe. You are the Christ, the son of God who is coming into the world. She believes it. She understands it. Even though her faith is small, she gets it. I want you to write this down for point number two. Believe Jesus will give you eternal life now. Believe Jesus will give you eternal life now. I want you to write that down right now. Believe Jesus will give you eternal life right now. See, here's the problem. When we think about life and eternal life, we were thinking like Martha, right? And it wasn't wrong. It's just incomplete. She wasn't wrong. But what she's thinking of is eternal life in the future. Jesus says, if you believe in me right now, you will have a new kind of life. New, eternal life that will last forever right now. That's why in John 10, what we just read last week, Jesus says, if anyone believes in me, they'll, they'll like come into my hand and the Father's hand and no one will snatch them. It's eternal. You're secure if you trust in Jesus. When Adam and Eve sinned, death, separation from God. Romans 5.17 says that if through one person's sin, 
that death became so powerful and it reigned in the whole world and it still reigns in this world in a sense. What would happen if someone more powerful than Adam comes along and brings life to the world? Something bigger than that death. It's like if you weighed them on scales. That's why Romans 8 says, if, if you look at the, the present suffering and you look at the glory that it's to come, the glory is heavier. The glory is it's better than even the, the, the bad suffering that happens right now. Jesus offers life right now. We don't always think about that. We usually think he'll offer life in the future. He offers life right now. What kind of life? What kind of life though? Spiritual life. That you'll know God. John 17, 3 says, this is eternal life. That you, or that they know you. He's talking to God here. The only true God and Jesus whom you sent. That's what it means to live. To know who Jesus is. And not just know about him like, like in, in a test and scantron kind of way. But to know him personally. He offers life right now. What's Martha going to do about that? What's Jesus going to do about this? Look at verse 28. The story continues. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. So now Mary finds out that Jesus is here. And what does she do? Immediately, she rose up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village. So he's still where he was talking to Martha. Martha leaves, goes, grabs Mary. Mary's like, okay, Jesus is here. I'm coming right away. And it says when she stood up so quickly, the people in the house who were consoling her, they thought, oh, she must be going to the tomb then. I mean, she, she just ran up and Martha said something. She ran up and went. They must be going to the tomb. So they come and follow. Verse 32, now when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and she fell at his feet. I don't know if you've ever seen someone fall at someone's feet. I've never really seen it in real life. Maybe in a movie. But imagine being so distraught, so sad, mourning so much that when you see someone, it's just like you just collapse at their feet and you're just like hugging their ankles. That's what they do. That's what Mary does because she's so sad and she finally sees Jesus, the Savior who she thought was going to come before. What does she say? The exact same thing Martha said. I'm sure they rehearsed it. I'm sure they talked about it. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. There's a little faith in that, right? If you had been here, you wouldn't have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her were also weeping, he was deeply moved. Deeply moved. You see in your Bibles, there, there should be a footnote there. There should be a number one or maybe a number two. Trace that down to the bottom of your Bibles. There's deeply moved. There's another word that it probably actually means, that the language really says, but deeply moved maybe covers a bigger range of emotions than this word. But here's, I think, what this word really meant. You guys find it at the bottom of your pages? Indignant. You guys know what indignant means? Angry. It says Jesus saw Mary weeping at, her, at his feet and Martha stressed out, anxious, worried out of her mind. And then the Jews are like mm -hmm, weeping. All right, that's what they would do. It's not that they really loved him or cared about him. That was a cultural thing that you were supposed to do. When people were dead, or when people were weeping, you were supposed to cry and lament and do whatever they do. Jesus saw the two things happening at once, and it said it made him really mad, really, really mad. When he saw Mary genuinely, sympathetically weeping, and he saw the Jews hypocritically standing there pretending like they care, it made him really mad. What's Jesus mad about? Is he mad at Mary? I don't think he's mad at Mary. Is he mad at the Jews? I think partially. But you know what I think he's ultimately mad at? That all of this is happening and in general. He's just mad about all of this. He's mad about the death. He's mad about sickness. Because guess what? He knows in a more personal way than you and I ever know about sickness and death. 
He knows. He gets it. He knows that it doesn't belong in this world. He knows that he's going to destroy it, and he knows how much pain it causes his people, and he hates it. He hates it. Verse 34, when Jesus, and they, they said to Jesus, or what Jesus said, where have you laid him? Let's go. Let's go to his tomb. And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And verse 35 is so powerful, so strong. It only needs two words to say something huge about Jesus. It says, Jesus wept. This is not the same word for weeping that the Jews were doing. The thing that the Jews were doing was probably a cultural, like a wailing and oh, these big loud noises. Jesus weeping. What that means is it's like this quiet, still, just being overcome by sadness, just dripping tears, just really sad himself. Not outwardly, not showing this big thing of emotion for everyone to see, but just so sad. You ever been somewhere where you're so sad and you just start crying, you can't help it? You're not screaming, you're not yelling, it's just you just start crying because it's so sad. That's what Jesus is doing right here. He's weeping. Why is he weeping? Lazarus is going to, I mean, we know the end of the story. We know Lazarus is going to be raised. We know he's the resurrection. Why is he weeping? I think he's weeping for Mary. I think he's weeping for Martha. I think he's weeping for you and me when we lose a loved one too. I think he's entering into all of this suffering that death has caused in this world and saying it is terrible and I hate it. Jesus weeps, cries. So the Jews said to him, see how he loved him. Wow. The, the Jews are like, oh, he's crying because he must have loved Lazarus a lot and now Lazarus is dead. He'll never see him again. That's what they're thinking. And then some of the Jews said in verse 37, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also kept this man from dying? Couldn't he have done that? I mean, maybe, probably, but he didn't. So he must not really be able to conquer death. He must not really be able to conquer all sicknesses, just the ones he uses his magic trick powers on. They're doubting that. I think this passage shows us, even just in, highlighted in verse 35, but in 33 too, that Jesus really grieved over death. He grieved over how powerful it was. I want you to write this down for point number three. We need to grieve over the devastation of death. Grieve over the devastation of death. You need to feel that for a second. If you've had a loved one die, you've probably felt this before. But maybe you didn't even let yourself feel it. That's what a lot of people do these days. They feel the pain of losing somebody, but they, they push it away and don't want to embrace it at all. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus embraces it. He weeps. He grieves. Even though he's about to have dinner with Lazarus that night. That's just weird. Why is he weeping? He's weeping because he knows how much death hurts his people that he loves. And two of them were standing right there. One of them uncontrollably weeping, this younger sister, Mary. The other one putting on a brave face, Martha, but really hurting inside. And he knows them. This is exactly what he said in John 10. He says, I, I know my sheep. I know them. I know them. Think about what that means that Jesus knows us. He's grieved over this. We should grieve over it too. That's why a lot of people are really quick to say, let's just celebrate their life. Let's just do that. Right? It's not all bad. Right? Let's just celebrate. Let's just celebrate. He'd want a party. He wouldn't want to grieve. Well, you should grieve for a second because the worst thing in history just happened to this person. They died. Their spirit was removed from their body. This is the consequences of sin and I hate it. So if you're really sad at funerals and if you cry, that's, that's good. That's okay. Don't let anybody tell you you shouldn't because Jesus weeps right here. The Bible also tells us that as Christians, we're supposed to weep with other people who are weeping and not in a hypocritical way. This is what Romans 12, 15 says. Rejoice with those who rejoice. It's hard for us sometimes when people have good things happen to them to get excited with them because we get jealous, right? Because we want that. It's also hard to weep 
with those who weep. And that's what it says next. Weep with those who weep. When people are hurting, sometimes we'll see someone who's hurting and we say, ooh, I don't want to get into that. I can't take that emotional stress in my life right now. I mean, they're weeping. They've got a lot lost loved one. I don't want to just leave them alone. No, no, no. The Bible says come in and weep with them. Be with them. Hurt with them. You feel what they feel. Be sympathetic because that's what Jesus did for us. I think that's why he's weeping right here. But here's the problem. I will say this. Sometimes if we weep and we grieve like there is no hope, that's where we cross into maybe grieving wrongly. We need to grieve, but when we grieve, we've got to also remember, but we have hope, a solid hope. Here's what 1 Thessalonians 4.13 says. It says, we don't want you to be uninformed. Paul's writing to these Christians and he says, I don't want you guys to be ignorant of what's really going on here when people die. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's bad. It says, but we don't want you to grieve as those who have no hope. It's not the same grieving. It's different. What you're grieving when someone dies, yes, you're grieving the loss of somebody, but you're also grieving that death exists at all. That's what we got to think about. Whenever we go to a funeral, whenever we think about someone dying, whenever we even think about our own death, what we need to grieve, although we're grieving the loss of a loved one, we got to do that too. But another thing we should remember is this is bad. And this is why we need Jesus right here because he can give us life. He's the only one that can do it. You know the end of the story. Jesus makes this guy Lazarus come back to life. Let's read that. Verse 38. Look back in your Bibles. Everybody, this is John eleven thirty-eight. 38. It says, then Jesus deeply moved again, indignant again, angry again, sad, sympathetic all at once. And you can feel more than one emotion at once, can't you? You can be upset, mad, confused, all that at once. Jesus is not confused, but he's certainly upset and he's mad. Deeply moved again. He came to the tomb and it was a cave. That's the style of tomb it was. And a stone laid against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. If you ever went to a funeral, and the funeral's over, stay four. People are still grieving at the house. And you show up, and you say, let's go to the cemetery. Go, okay, we'll go to the cemetery. Oh, they want to weep there. And you say, hey, grab a shovel. Let's grab shovels, everybody. Hey, you guys got shovels? I mean, you guys put them in there. Let's, let's grab some shovels, everybody. Let's dig them up. You'd be like, no, don't do that. That's really weird. You shouldn't do that. He's dead. Let's not dig him up. Let's, let's leave him. That's why, why he's in a casket that's sealed, right? Let's not dig him up again. Jesus says, dig him up. Come on. Open the, open the tomb. And Martha said what probably you'd say if this is your brother. Yeah, no, let's not. Let's not do that. Let's not open the grave. That would, it's gross. It's been four days and, and he has an odor. He stinks. It's been four days. Have you ever had something die, maybe in your backyard or your garage or something like that, and you walk in, you're like, oh, what's that smell? It's death, right? It's a rat that died or a bird that died or a possum or a raccoon or a skunk, maybe in your backyard, or they're dead, and it's like, oh, gross, or a rabbit, right? And they die, and they're left there, and they, they rot, and they stink. That's what happens to humans, too. We stink when we die after a while. Verse 40, Jesus turns to her, and instead of being super gracious, he gives a little rebuke here. He says, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? Stop, stop stopping me, okay? I'm doing what I'm doing. Don't tell me not to dig him up. Don't tell me not to open the, 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 the tomb because if you believed, you would see the glory of God right now. And what is she about to see? She's about to see the glory of God in a way that she's never seen it before. Verse 41, so they took away the stone. And Jesus, right, you can imagine standing at this tomb that had just been opened. The stone was just now rolled away. He's standing in front of it, and it says he starts, he looks up. 
He takes his eyes, looks up towards heaven, and says, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people that are standing around me, that they may believe you sent me. It's kind of awkward to be included in a prayer that other people pray. It's like, I, I thank you, because I know I know, but the, I want these people to know too. That's what Jesus says. It's almost like a little rebuke. Really, it's inviting them to believe in him. Verse 43, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice. And a loud voice is a, sh- is a shout. It's a scream. It's not a hey. It's a, it's a hey. Lazarus, come out. And it said the man who had died. Doesn't even give his name. Just the man who had died. Remember him? Remember him four days ago? He died. He didn't just like, there's no coma here. He's dead. He was dead. He came out. His hands and his feet were bound with linen strips. He had all these grave clothes on. He's probably, he can't really walk with grave clothes because it's not in the design. Think about it. It's just not in the design. You can't really walk with your grave clothes on because they bind you probably with your feet together. You've seen this before probably. It's like, right? He probably hopped out. That's how they did it. So this, that's why he's like, hey, get, get this off of him. Unbind him. I heard one pastor long time ago preach this passage, and he says, it's a good thing Jesus named who he was calling, because if he didn't name it, the whole cemetery would have come out. <laughs> Called Lazarus, come out. That's how much power Jesus has. That this guy has been dead for four days, and his grave clothes are around his ankles, so he has to hop out. He hops out, and he's standing there. Right? And Jesus says, unbind him. Take, take all the stuff off of his face. He's got stuff on his face, his arms. Let's get this guy walking. And they probably went home and had dinner that night. That's weird. Okay, now, this all happens. You're one of the disciples. You're one of the Jews standing there. What's your response to all this? Like, oh yeah, it's cool. It's cool. I'm totally normal. Yeah, cool. Yeah, I'm just casual. No. I hope that at this point, you're like, okay, Jesus, I get it. I, I get it. I get it. You're everything you say you are. You are the son of God. You are all of those things. That is the right response to this. The Jews, though, I mean, what do they do? Next week, we're going to say many of those Jews, therefore, wanted to kill Lazarus. They wanted to assassinate him because they're like, well, if people find out that he was dead and we all knew he was dead, the report spread for four days. If, if people find him alive, they're going to believe in Jesus. So let's kill him again. Again. Poor Lazarus. <laughs> Poor Lazarus. Lazarus, I mean, think about it. If you're dead, like, where'd you go? Like, that's, the, that's the question I'm not answering because we don't know. It doesn't say where he went. I mean, I know he didn't go to hell. So this was a demotion, whatever he did. Coming back to earth, living again. And he had to die again. The dude died twice. Could you imagine that? That, that really stinks. It's scary enough to die once. Probably he's pretty prepared for the second time. Not as afraid, maybe. All of this should cause them and us to have the same response. Point number four, fortify, strengthen your confidence in death's conqueror. Fortify your confidence in death's conqueror. Make it strong. Because this story is not just something that happened then. It's not just about Lazarus. Although that is the original context. It is about Lazarus. It's about more than just Lazarus. It's about what Jesus said, if anyone believes in me, if anyone, if you believe in Jesus. This is going to happen to you. This will happen to you. That's weird, right? I mean, it's just weird to think whatever, you, you know, you're dressed in, you know, when you, when you die, like you're going to come out. You might be wearing those clothes. I don't know. 
when we all meet again, hopefully dress something, wear something nice. Because this is not permanent. Because for Christians, for those who believe in Jesus, death is not permanent. There's a question that comes up, well, Lazarus, he died again. Does that mean if we're resurrected, we'll die again too? No, because Lazarus's resurrection is not the same as our future resurrection. It's different. Our resurrection in the future will be like Jesus's resurrection. Book of Colossians that we looked at last week, it says that Jesus is the firstborn of the dead. He's the prototype. Our bodies are going to be like his glorious body. 1 Corinthians 15, which is an important passage for you to write down. 1 Corinthians 15, 42 says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown in this earth is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. What is sown in weakness now is raised in power. Our, our bodies now, they're weak, they're dishonorable, they're perishable, they get sick, they die, but our new bodies won't be anything like that. They'll be new, they'll be fresh, they will not decay, they won't get old, your joints won't hurt, your back won't get hurt, none of that. You're going to breathe just fine, everything's going to be normal and healthy and good because that is how God designed it. Everything now, we think, oh, well, it's normal to have allergies, it's normal to have sickness, it's normal to have ailments, like, no, 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 no. Those are all results of Adam and Eve's sin. It's not normal. It's not good. It's not right. You'll be able to eat whatever you want in the new kingdom. That'll be good for my wife. She can have cashews. We can talk about what she missed out on in this life. It says when he puts on these new bodies on us, it says that's when we'll take the kingdom, which would be really awkward if you went into Jesus' kingdom with your body now. You'd only last 70, 80 years because you'd die right? Because your body is not made for that kingdom. We're going to get new bodies that will be physical. They will eat. They will drink. They will sleep maybe. Don't know. Maybe not. Don't quote me on that. If we don't end up sleeping, then I didn't tell you so. But everything will be good. It says when all that happens, we'll think about this. Death will be swallowed up in victory. Imagine like a big thing. We think death is a huge thing, right? Isn't it a huge thing? Point number three says it's a huge thing. It's a huge thing. But death, as big as it is and as powerful and strong as it is and how it overtakes people's life and our fears, what happens? All of that gets swallowed up in something bigger. Victory, life that Jesus gives. I heard a story this week about a guy from Tennessee. A guy from Tennessee, this is in the 1960s when uh, the Vietnam War was going on. And it seemed like in his family, it was just him and his mom. So he's a young guy, 18, 19, 20, something like that. Um, and his mom, living by themselves in Tennessee, the war happens, he gets drafted, he leaves his mom, mom's all by herself. And one day, after about a year or two of serving, the Marine Corps show up at her door. And that's what it means when one of them, when they die. So she opens the door, she knows exactly what's going on. If they show up in uniform, saying your son died. But he died valiantly. He died in battle. It was, he's a good fighter. We're going to give him honors, special honors. So they go through all this process, and then they, they bury him. But they don't have his complete body, so they, they don't really have anything to bury, so they bury an empty casket. They have that service. They honor him. They give him all those special military honors. But the body was so messed up, they could barely identify it. All this happens, and she weeps, right? Just like you'd expect. This mom and only son, she's weeping crying, mourning. Then life goes on, and about six months later, the Marine Corps show up again at her door. They say that was, that was the wrong guy. 
your son's alive. Sorry for putting you through all that. We're, we're discharging him because we put you through six months of mourning. Really bad. Your son was alive. They got the names mixed up. They identified through a tag that this guy had the same first name as the other guy's last name. So that was a, a weird clarification. They had to bring the FBI in to, to do a, a test on the remains, and it wasn't the right guy. And their son is fighting, doesn't know about any of this, right? Six months later, he's fighting, he's doing all of his thing, and then he comes back. He gets discharged because of the horrible thing that this lady got put through. You know, I think if they got reunited in any way, it would be awesome, wouldn't it? In any format. If he was there for a year, if he was there for five years, if anything, it would have been great. But you know what the reunion must have been like after thinking he was dead for six months? Must have been a whole different kind of thing. God promises something even better for you and I because we will go through the pain and the grieving of losing our loved ones. We will. But that reunion that we'll have will be permanent. Because the problem, even with this guy, this was in the 1960s in Tennessee. I'm sure that this mom is, is long gone by now, not alive anymore. They're separated again by death. But when we're reunited, we'll be reunited forever. That'll make the, the reunion we have that much sweeter. But all of these things that have been awesome, we talked about, they only apply to people who trust in Jesus. That's it. If you don't trust in Jesus, you don't get any of this benefits of the life that he gives. That's why it's so important. That's why we talk about a lot of things at church, but this is it. This is what our church is about. This is what this ministry is about. This is what your small group is about. This is what it's all about. What you do with Jesus, whether or not you will live with him forever or not. Let's pray about that right now. God, please help us see this. Sometimes we don't even see that death is real. We are blind to it sometimes because we don't interact with it so much in our lives, but I ask that you would please help us see it, that we'd face death, we'd, we'd, we'd think of it, we'd see it, we'd reckon with it, we'd grieve over it, and then we'd look to you, knowing that you're bigger, you're stronger, and that you give eternal life, even now, presently, in our hearts to everyone who believes, so that when we die, it's not even like we really die, it's like we are just transported, we're just translated to a new reality where we still know you. We still are in fellowship with each other. We're so thankful for that. And we pray that this would be encouraging to us. Some of us maybe think about loved ones who have died and other of us think about our own situation before you. Pray that those who don't trust you would trust you. And that you'd apply all these amazing things to their life today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, guys, you are dismissed.